you know, sometimes in life we experience disorienting things. I'm sure you're aware that Simone Biles withdrew from significant portions of the Olympics because of the twisties. The twisties describe a condition where you, you can't figure out which way is up or down and, and where you are in relation to the air or ground. I would think that would be alarming as a gymnast. The twisties, she was disoriented. I think the gospel does the twisties on us. It takes us, it takes life as we know it, and it, it just jumbles it all up and down. It takes what we know to be normal as non-Christians before we come to Christ, and it, it turns it all inside out, and it turns it all upside down. But unlike the case with Simone Biles, this isn't a negative thing for us as Christians. Uh, yes, it's disorienting, it can be disorienting at first, but it's good in the end because it sets us on the solid ground of what life should look like and how we should live according to the Word of God. One realm the Apostle Paul has been working the territory on in the last few weeks is how the Gospel reorients our direction as it relates to relationships. As Christians, how do we live out our most basic relationships? How does the gospel direct and inform our lives as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents? What are our roles and responsibilities? How do we live underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ in these things? Well, today he continues in the same vein. He wants the gospel to reorient us in another key realm. But I will tell you up front that for us in the 21st century, in America, this text is difficult to approach because this text deals with slaves and masters. Now, the last several weeks, even if perhaps you're not married, perhaps you don't have any children, you can certainly understand the principles Paul is teaching you, which apply to all Christians. All Christians are the bride of Christ, after all. All Christians are children of God, after all. But this text, this is just so foreign to us. Slavery. How how does this have anything to do with me? And slavery. I mean, the very word conjures horrific images in our minds of unspeakable oppression and injustice. So, here's what I think. I think before you're going to be able to listen to this text for what it is, to understand what it's saying to its original audience, before we can bring this down to ourselves and reap a gospel word for our souls, it does have a gospel word for our souls. We got to do some pre-work, okay? So you kids, if you're about to go back to school, sometimes you have pre-work and you're like, pre-work, that stinks, man. I understand, but, you know, sometimes you've got to do it in order to jump into the school year well. Well, we've got to do some pre-work before we get into this text. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to begin by working through the context of this text, 
before we exegete, draw out the content of this text. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, and let's read the text. Actually, scratch that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. Why I'm having you start here is going to be apparent in just a moment. We're going to talk about the theological context of this passage first, and then the cultural context of this passage second. And if you are helped by outlines, you can check out the outline in the bulletin there, and that's going to let you know where we are and where we're going. So, theologically, the first thing you need to know is that this text is not just off on its own, like randomly inserted in Ephesians. This is part of what's known as the household code. So let's read it all, including our text this morning. Pick up in 522. 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is all one tight unit, and it's been known for years as the household code. Luther coined that phrase back in the Reformation, the household code, and it stuck. Now, why is this called the household code? Well, because it deals with relationships in the household. You know, husbands and wives, children and parent, slaves and masters. Now, I want you to notice something. This is a very tight unit. In each section, those under authority are addressed first. And those in authority are addressed second. So wives, then husbands in 22 through 33. Children, then parents in 6, 1 through 4. Slaves, 
then masters in 5 through 9. And then if you notice, which I hope you did, to each group, he tells them how God would have them to live out their role in a way that honors him. So to those under authority, he calls them to submit to those whom God has placed over them. To those in authority, he tells them to carry out their authority in a particular way. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This is not brute, harsh authority. This is loving authority, tender authority. The word to fathers is don't exasperate your children. This isn't brute authority or harsh authority. This is tender authority as well. And the word to masters, as we'll see, is treat your slaves well. Stop any and all threatening This isn't to be brute or harsh authority either. It's to be kind, respectful, done, in fact, in the fear of God, knowing that God will judge them impartially based upon how they treat them. What am I trying to show you? What I'm trying to show you is that this is part of a unit. This all goes together. Now, there are key differences in these groups. You'll notice Paul grounds marriage and parenting theologically and creationally. So just think marriage here for a second. Paul grounds marriage and the relationships in marriage as a creation ordinance intended to picture Jesus' eternal relationship with his bride. Okay? Now think parenting. Parenting is grounded in creation as well. Think of the call to be fruitful and multiply before the fall. Now, as it relates to slavery, no such theological grounding is given. Why is that significant? Because I don't want you to put these relationships on the same playing field, okay? That may seem obvious to you, but I want you to see it theologically. Marriage and parenting are good gifts of God, ordained by God, observable in creation, before the fall. Slavery is something that came after the fall and is in effect an outflow of the fall. Now, why is this included in the household code in Ephesians? I think we should ask that. If we're going to understand it rightly, we have to ask, well, what's the relationship to everything that came before? Here's the deal. It's actually really clear. Ephesians 1 through 3 is like a diamond. So no matter what angle you look at it from, it's teaching you about God's redemption. How he saved wayward, defiant Dead in our transgression sinners through Jesus' work on the cross. And all sorts of sinners, Jews and Gentiles, it didn't get any different back in that day than those two groups. And he's brought us together as one people in his church. That's like a two or three sentence summation of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Well, 4 through 6 is this. It's about living out that one people identity as a church it's about living in unity and harmony Ephesians 4 headlines the exhortation section and what's the command there walk in a manner worthy of your calling and then he gives all these interpersonal relational commands with gentleness humility and patience bearing with one another eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
God's created this one body and he wants this one body to live as one body in local congregations. Now the rest of four through the bulk of five is explicitly directed to the church and it fleshes out for us how we're to walk in this unity. So don't walk as you used to walk. Walk in the light. Walk in wisdom. Walk in love. Now after all of that, which is so clearly directed to the church. Why in the world does Paul jump onto a different train of thought and address the household in 522 through 69? Is he like a lab that saw a squirrel? You know, he had a focus and then he thought of, oh yeah. (laughs) No, let me just tell you what the connection is. It's actually very simple. Through the gospel... God's created a new society. He's created a new people. He's created his church. And what's the bedrock of that society? It's very simple, and you know it. It's the household. If God wants his church to live in unity and harmony, don't you think relationships in the household have got to know how to live in unity and harmony? Just think of how needed this was in the churches around Ephesus. So you have husbands and wives, you have children and parents, you have slaves and masters who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. They have been saved out of a pluralistic and pagan background. And they're sitting together (laughs) in church. They need to know how in the world they're supposed to relate to one another at home. How in the world does the gospel impact how they understand these relationships? How how can the church be unified if, if they're not okay at home? And make no mistake, the Roman culture had answers to these things. The Roman culture had answers as to how these relationships should be structured, organized, viewed, treated. What does God want? That's how all of this fits into the context of Ephesians. Now, the next piece of context that you've got to get is the cultural context. So it's just a basic point in hermeneutics, big word of how to study your Bible and understand it. It's just a basic point in hermeneutics that in order to rightly interpret the scriptures, you've got to know something about the author's original context and setting before you can bridge what the author intended for his audience to the application for us today. They have to be in line. So this is particularly important for us right now in this moment, because when you hear the word slavery, I guarantee you all that you think of is America's slavery in the past. So you picture a plantation... You picture race-based slavery and the brutal atrocities with it. That is the picture that is in your mind. You need to know this is different than the slavery in Paul's era. So first of all, you just need to know by way of fact that in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, over a third of the population was enslaved. Okay. Next, you need to be aware of just some distinctives. Uh, of Roman era slavery. Here are five that one commentator points out, but these five aren't unique to this commentator. This is largely agreed upon in academic circles. Number one, unlike slavery in the U.S., racial factors played no role. So Roman slaves were from every race of people in the Mediterranean region and involved people from every single country. So common sources of slaves were prisoners of war, abandoned infants, Those indebted sometimes sold themselves into slavery, and some became slaves because they were captured by slave traders. 
Two, many slaves could reasonably be expected to receive emancipation in their lifetime. So again, unlike slavery in the U.S., no emancipation, there was a real possibility in this context. This makes sense of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7.21. He says, if you can gain your freedom, speaking to a slave, he says, avail yourself of that opportunity. Three, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized, responsible positions. So slaves did not merely serve as agricultural or domestic workers. Slaves were doctors. They were teachers. They were writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. Four, many slaves received education and training in special skills. And five, free slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship with their former masters. Now, I don't share all of those to present slavery in Paul's context through rose-colored glasses as though it was just a wonderful and beautiful thing. It was still slavery. There were still horrific atrocities in this setting too. But the reality is you just need to know how different it was from what comes to your mind. Race-based slavery in the U.S.'s history. It's not like that, okay? Now I also realize that you may have questions running through your mind. Maybe one of them is, why does Paul even speak to this? Like, like why not just call for its abolishment? I don't have a definitive answer for that, brothers and sisters, but let me say two things. Number one, embedded in the very heartbeat of Scripture are the principles that set the stage for the abolition of slavery. Two, having said one, it also has to be said that's just not Paul's focus. Paul isn't calling for an overthrow of this institution. Instead, under the inspiration and authority of the Spirit, his focus is is on how those in this state should carry themselves in a way that honors and glorifies God. So let's focus ourselves on that so that we can understand and benefit from this scripture. So I want you to read 6, 5 through 9 with me again. 6, 5 through 9. Here's our text. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. The basic command is given right up front in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your masters. Now, what's so interesting here is that what Paul goes on to say, did you notice, as we're reading through this, the frame of reference he fixes in the mind of the bond servant? Did you notice the frame of reference that he fixes in their mind? It's Christ. Obey with a sincere heart as to Christ. Verse 5. Not by way of eye service, but as bond servants of Christ. Verse 6. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 7. In other words, the obedience called for is an obedience done as to Christ. 
So it's carried out with Christ fixed at the center of one's game gaze. And so that changes how you think of things if you're a bondservant, right? If you carry out your role as a bondservant as you would to Christ, then that changes how you do things. L- listen to John Stott. Quote, The Christ-centeredness of this instruction is very striking. The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have broadened. His Monday tasks have been absorbed into the higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. Once Christian slaves were clear in their mind that their primary responsibility was to serve the Lord Christ, their service to their earthly masters would become exemplary. And this makes sense of the manner of obedience slaves are called to here. Paul describes how they're to carry out their obedience, and he describes it in three ways. So, first, with fear and trembling and sincerity. I don't think this is fear. I don't think this fear is like cringing fear. As we'll see in a minute, masters should not be threatening their slaves, so there should be no need for that kind of fear. Rather, this is a reverential acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose authority the master represents. So they serve with sincerity. Well, what does that mean? It just means with integrity. Have purity in your intentions, put away guile, put away scheming, put away deceit, serve with sincerity. Second, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from their heart. Based on their new identity in Christ, they should serve their masters not simply to make a good impression, but with pure motives. They should serve their masters not simply when their master is looking on in order to curry favor with him, but when he's not looking on. Why? Because they're to serve as bond servants of Christ. Christ is the ultimate reference point for their service now. In their serving of their master, they are serving Jesus Christ. Third, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. In other words... Serve with a good attitude. As you would Christ, serve your master. You don't serve Christ with a bad attitude. You serve Christ with a good attitude. So don't serve your earthly master with a bad attitude because ultimately you're serving Christ. Now, look at the ground for all of this. Look at the ground for all of this in verse 8. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. This is incredible. Incredibly hope-giving. Incredibly service-fueling. Incredibly motivating. What's the promise? That whatever good anyone does, whatever task you're doing, technical or mundane, whatever role you are filling, including that of a slave, when you serve as described above, you will be rewarded by the God who sees all things. Think of how encouraging this would be to a slave. This means that he or she, as they serve, are walking in the good works God called them to walk in. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 
This means that their service is not insignificant or unnoticed, but God sees them. God knows how they're carrying themselves. And this means that their service will be rewarded. Not only does God see how they are serving, He is pleased with how they are serving, and He will reward them in a coming day. Here's what all of this comes down to. The gospel has transformed their slavery. It it is not mere service to a human master. It is service to Christ. And thus, in this culture, where slaves were second-class citizens, do you know what God has done? He has elevated and dignified them. He has lifted up their eyes and He has placed them squarely on Him and He has said, in this role, you ultimately serve Me. I am your ultimate Master and I see and I will reward you. So now having dignified and oriented slaves, He goes on to orient masters on how they're to treat their slaves. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them, with him, excuse me. So that first phrase is just a bit confusing. Masters, do the same to them. What does that mean? Well, it means that just as the slave is to carry out his role in view of Christ, so too the master is to carry out his role in view of Christ. So the slave understands that he's to serve his master as he would serve Christ, and the master understands that he's to treat his slave as Christ would have him treat them. So what does that mean? In brief, it means that he must treat his slaves well. It means masters must treat their slaves with dignity as God's image bearers. Stop your threatening. Treat them well. And just as a slave is encouraged by the prospect of future reward, so too the master is warned by the prospect of future judgment. To the slave, the Lord says, if you serve well, I will reward you. And to the master, the Lord says, if you treat your servant badly, I will judge you. And God is no respecter of persons. In the eyes of Roman law and culture, masters are elevated above slaves and they're pretty much able to treat their slaves however they want to. However they want to. But in the eyes of the law of God, slaves and masters are on equal footing. Both sinners saved by grace, both ultimately slaves of Christ. And God demands that masters treat their servants in a way consistent with that reality. They cannot rule them however they see fit. They must treat them well. Now, here's what I want to do. Hopefully, you've got a sense of the context of this passage and the content of this passage. So what I want to do is I just want to take a moment, I want to step back, and I want to apply this to our context. And I've got several thoughts for you this morning. First of all, brothers and sisters, do you see how radically countercultural the gospel is? So, first of all, think about, think about the household code. So not just slaves, but women and children. The gospel is radically 
counter-cultural. Do you know how Roman culture treated all of these categories of people? Women, children, slaves, property. Property that the head of the household could pretty much deal with however he wanted to. What does the gospel have to say about that? No way. The gospel dignifies and elevates every single person. Wives, children, slaves, all of them. God's image bearers, worthy of respect, to be treated in a manner consistent with that reality. Totally counter-cultural in that day. So, let's just think about our day. In our day, who are the people... Or types of people that the culture doesn't treat with dignity and honor. In our day, who are the people or the types of people that are considered less than in our world? How about the elderly? How do we view and treat the elderly? Well, we view them as not productive anymore, as a burden on society and family, and we shuffle them off to a nursing home in hopes that they don't bother us. How about the unborn? How do we treat and how do we view the unborn? Well, they're not even people, right? They're just a fetus, and so we can discard them if we don't want them. How about people of color? All of us know the terrible history of racism in our country, and racism still exists. Racism sees someone who's different than me as less than me. How about women? In the past, women in our country were treated as far inferior to men. The women's rights movement happened for a reason. But the gospel comes in to all of these categories, and it says, you are all of equal value, dignity, and worth, and you are all to be treated as such. And do you know where this should be the most evident? I think you know. In the church. Listen, we are sinners, and so we can have a tendency to act like the world. So we talk about the big bad culture, and that's fair game. But let's make sure we're being honest with ourselves, because we can have a tendency to act like the world and look down on certain people. So the guy or gal that doesn't look or smell clean, but comes into our worship service in the morning, how do we treat them? So the guy or gal that goes outside to take a smoke break, how do we treat them? So the guy or gal that doesn't look like he's got a penny in the world, how do we treat them? So the guy or gal that's of a different culture, background, expression, dress, whatever it may be, how do we treat them? Most of us have button-down shirts. You're like, no, man, we live in Vermont. I'm wearing like a T-shirt. That's Sunday best. Fair enough. I know what you're saying. But you get what I'm saying. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, Sit in a good place, while you say to the good man, You stand over there or you sit here at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the gospel is the ultimate equalizer and it causes and it calls us to act with no partiality with one another in 
all, in and through all of our differences. It calls us to act with no partiality. I think it's beautiful how the gospel creates these new relational realities. Isn't that beautiful? It creates these new relational realities. Jews and Gentiles couldn't have been more different. And then they get put together in the same church. In that culture, slaves and masters totally stratified. But that stratified setup construct is deconstructed when they are in the church and they are equals in the eyes of God. It's really amazing how the gospel it brings together different people in different spheres of life, brings them together, and we are to demonstrate to the outside world the beauty of what it looks like to be a Christian. So that's one thought for you. The other thought is that the gospel is really transformative of our lives as those who are under authority. You, you recognize the household code, right? It speaks to those under authority and it speaks to those in authority. And in all of them, but particularly this one, the gospel is absolutely transformative of our lives as those who are under authority. Do you know what it tells everyone who is under authority? Your work is significant no matter what it is what your station in life or what you do. It's significant. You remember that passage in Colossians 3.17? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The most menial task, the most menial position in life God infuses it with dignity when he tells the bond servant to serve in whatever realm you are as though you're serving me and I see it and I will reward you. Brothers and sisters, what you do on a daily basis is pleasing to God if done in this way as God calls the servant to with sincerity, with a good attitude. Not as people pleasers, but serving the Lord Christ. So who here gets discouraged in your work and feels like, I'm building widgets, this is meaningless, right? I'm trying to raise my kids, this is not working, this is meaningless. I'm guarding the border, I'm selling real estate, I'm this, I'm that, this is all meaningless. No, it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless at all. Who are you ultimately serving in everything that you do? the Lord Jesus Christ. Work is worship, actually. Work is worship. And if the slave in the first century, if that work is dignified, oh, friends, your work is dignified. Let me encourage you. In whatever sphere the Lord has you, work wholeheartedly, work with a motivation as to please God, and work hard as to whether your work is considered significant or not in the eyes of the world. God sees it as significant if you serve Him in it. And let me also say that the gospel is transformative by of our lives as those in authority. 
If the Lord happens to have put you in a position of authority, either in your home or in the workplace, friend, how are you exercising that authority? Are you exercising that authority in view of the fact that your those under you are God's image bearers to be treated with dignity and respect, with love and care? How are you exercising your authority? And you will be judged based upon how you exercise your authority. So I think these things apply to us today as those in authority, as those under authority. I think these things teach us of the countercultural nature of the gospel. But over and above all of that, I want us to reflect finally on the reality that the gospel makes us all slaves of Jesus Christ. Friends, what's Paul's like favorite way of referring to himself? Do you happen to know? A bondservant of Christ. That means slave. Doulos. Same word here. It's how he refers to himself over and over and over and over in the New Testament. Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Paul, a slave of Christ. And it's not just Paul who's a slave to Christ. All of us who are Christ's are slaves of Christ. What does Paul say to us? For you are not your own. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ as that of a lamb without blemish and spot. We are not our own. So we are to serve our Lord Jesus Christ as his slaves. He is our master. And could there be any better arrangement? There could not be. Could there be any more wonderful master? There could not be. Brothers and sisters, we are slaves of Christ and our submission to his will in our lives is not just something that continues in the here and now. It will continue on into eternity. So interesting. When you look at the last chapters of Revelation, the writer uses the imagery of a bride and of children and of servants as still applicable to God's people. In all eternity. We are the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. We are the slaves of Christ. And we delight to be so. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you just think, well, this just seems all weird. Well, you, friend, are a slave too. We're actually all enslaved. All of us. It's just a question of of whom will we serve? You are a slave to your own passions and desires and sin. And your slavery will ultimately lead in separation from God and death. But Jesus offers to free you from yourself and from your captor, the devil, and bring you into his service. And he is a good master. Jesus died on the cross And then rose again to pay the penalty for your sins if you will but turn from your sin and trust in him. And he offers you to bring you into his household. (laughs) He offers to treat you with more dignity and respect and give you more freedom and joy than you can possibly imagine. So I want to invite you this morning to no longer serve yourself 
and to be a slave to your own sin and desires and the devil, but to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He continually offers to you to bring you into his service. Praise God for the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you as people grateful for your work. And we ask you to continue to work in our hearts and lives such that we honor you and please you. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.